All right. If you want to go ahead and make your way back to your seats. I am not waiting for you this morning, so when you get to your seat, open your Bible to Romans chapter 9. No, I mean, seriously, I'm not waiting for you this morning. Sit down, open your Bible to Romans chapter 9, and while you do that, I'm going to read from Isaiah 55. These, these are verses uh, 8 through 11. It says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, and your ways are not my ways. This is the Lord's declaration. For as heaven is higher than earth, so my ways are higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. For just as rain and snow fall from heaven and do not return there without saturating the earth and making it germinate and sprout and providing seed to sow and food to eat, so my word that comes from my mouth will not return to me empty, but it will accomplish what I please and will prosper in what I send it to do. One of the great graces of God is that he has chosen to use the confines of human language in order to reveal to humanity the boundlessness of his nature. And unfortunately, one of the tragedies of our humanness is that we try to take a boundless God and then constrain him within the confines of our human minds, our finite human minds. What we often end up doing is that we picture God as some sort of big human, as if Being a big human, he is then subject to act in accordance to how we think normal humans or or regular people act, but he just does so with more knowledge and with more power and with greater perspective than it is that we have. The truth is that he is not merely a big human. He is an unfathomably great God. His ways are higher than our ways. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. His very being is completely other and greater than our finite, broken being. To see and understand even just a sliver of who God is and what his character is as he's revealed in his word is an unbelievable grace to us. It is a gift of his. If we were to be able to sit down with his word and understand it in all of its fullness, Understand every sentence, every passage, every word, all of the truth, all of its implications, all of the applications, and we could get all of that square within our minds. From Genesis all the way to Revelation, we still would not understand the fullness of who God is. 1 Corinthians 13, 12 says, For now we see only a reflection as in a mirror, but then we will see face to face. Now we know in part, but then we will know fully as we are fully known. There will come a day when we will see the Lord face to face, and we will see Him and know Him as fully as He sees and knows us. But that day is not today, and it's not going to happen while we're here on earth. And so we approach God's Word and His revelation of Himself with great humility. And as we do so, we have to be thankful that He's given it to us at all and understand that The God that is described in this word is a God that thanks to this word, we can know and love and cherish to a degree that we know and love and cherish him above all other things. We can know him to the degree necessary to be justified and saved by his grace through faith in Jesus Christ. And yet, we cannot know him fully and perfectly in all of who he is in the fullness of his character. It's simply not possible. And so if we approach his word with that sort of humility, especially when we arrive in difficult passages like we're going to handle today, 
and next week. If we don't come with the right kind of humility to a text like the middle portion of Romans chapter 9, then we risk overstating what it's possible for us to know. We risk writing off the mystery of what we simply cannot know. And maybe most importantly, we miss out on the unspeakable beauty of the mercy and grace of God and the justification of humanity. And so this morning, with all of that prefacing statement stuff in mind, I want to set a few ground rules. The first is that I know full well that there are many here this morning that would read Romans chapter 9, verses 6 to 18, and interpret them differently than I do. That's okay. I'm not trying to win a debate here this morning. In fact, if I were trying to win a debate, I would win because I'm the only one that's about to talk for the next 40 minutes. You're going to sit silently. I would walk away feeling very triumphant if I were trying to engage in a debate. But that's not what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to be faithful to what it is that God has revealed about himself in his word. And thus, what it tells us about how he works and how it is that we are to relate to him. My goal every week is to come to the word openly and humbly, allowing it to say what it says without making it say what I want it to say, or making it say or describe God as I want him to be described. My aim on any given Sunday morning with any given passage or text out of scripture is to help us understand, first and foremost, what that text says. It's to help us see what that means about who God is and how God works. It's to help us savor and cherish the truth of who God is and how he works, and then finally to help us take that and apply it or bring it to bear on our lives correctly and accurately. And so this morning with Romans uh, chapter 9, 6 to 18, and then next week with Romans chapter 9, 19, down to the end of the chapter in 33, the goal or the task is the same, and it's relatively simple, but it's not going to be easy necessarily. So what I'm, I'm asking for is a measure of grace from you, Uh, certainly a measure of grace from the Lord and an openness to what it is that God has to say about who he is and how he works. And so let me just read Romans 9, 6 to 18, then we'll pray and we'll dive in together. It says this, Now it is not as though the word of God has failed, because not all who are descended from Israel are Israel, neither are all of Abraham's children his descendants. On the contrary, your offspring will be traced through Isaac. That is, it is not the children by physical descent who are God's children, but the children of the promise are considered to be the offspring. For this is the statement of the promise. At this time I will come and Sarah will have a son. And not only that, but Rebekah conceived children through one man, our father Isaac. For though her sons had not been born yet or done anything good or bad, so that God's purpose according to election might stand, not from works, but from the one who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, I have loved Jacob, but I have hated Esau. What should we say then? Is there injustice with God? Absolutely not. For he tells Moses, I will show mercy to whom I will show mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then it does not depend on human will or effort, but on God who shows mercy. For the scripture tells Pharaoh, I raised you up for this reason, that I may display my power in you, and that my name may be proclaimed in the whole earth. So then he has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy, and he hardens whom he wants to harden. Let's pray together. God, thank you for your word. Lord, thank you that in it you've chosen to reveal yourself to us and that in that revelation you have showed us our need for you, the sufficiency of your son for salvation. God, you've shown us the greatness and the majesty and the glory of who you are and what your character is. God, I thank you that you are bigger than us that your ways are not our ways, that your thoughts are not our thoughts, God, that we approach you with awe and with an understanding that there's mystery associated with who you are. 
This morning, God, I pray that your spirit would be present with us. God, help our hearts to be humble before your word. God, help us to long to see you for who you truly are. God, help us to long to live in relationship with you. God, help us to long to be obedient, God. Lord, would you empower and uh, embolden me to speak accurately and truthfully and humbly this morning. God, would you be glorified and praised as a result of our time together? Would we uh, just revel in your mercy and your compassion? God, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Here's where we are in Romans in general. Um, Last week, we began Romans chapter 9, and we said that from Romans 9-1 all the way to the end of Romans 11, Paul is offering us the display of the consistency and the holiness of God's word and work in the justification of humanity. What Romans, 9, 11, or what Romans chapters 9 through 11 amount to is what's known as a theodicy or a defense or justification of who God is and a display of his character. Now, first and foremost, God needs no defense and no justification for who he is. At the same time, sometimes it's helpful for us as human beings to be walked through the truths of those things and have them spelled out for us. And so that's what Paul does. And here, starting in Romans 9, verse 6, Paul's going to jump straight into the core of this statement. And this morning, what we're going to see is that the word of God is consistent and the work of God is holy. The word of God is consistent. The work of God is holy. He jumps straight into that in verse six. Pause before we do this. Look at your neighbor. Say, buckle up. Look at the neighbor on the other side and say, no, I'm serious. (laughs) Buckle up. I couldn't wait for you at the start of our service because I went long first service and I'm, I'm trying to save two minutes in this service. So, Paul's going to jump straight into this in Romans 9, verse 6, and he makes his assertion. Now, it is not as though the word of God has failed, literally fallen. The word of God has not fallen. And then he justifies that or he offers his evidence for that. And he says, because not all who are descended from Israel are Israel. Now, why does Paul need to make this particular statement? Why is that what's important? Well, because he wants for his readers today and his original audience to cling to and cherish and appreciate all of the glorious promises of Romans chapter 8, that it is impossible for you to be separated from the love of God in Christ Jesus, that there is no condemnation for those who have experienced justification by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. He wants us to be able to cling to those. And so it, it stands to reason that if God's word has not held true for Israel, then how could, it hold, how could we trust it to hold true for us as Christians as well? To go a step further, in Romans 9, 1 to 5, Paul implied that not all of the Israelite people are going to be uh, inheriting the fullness of the covenant promises that were made to Abraham. Some of them are going to be cursed and cut off. Last week we said the word there is anathema. Some of them are going to be separated from the Lord and designated ultimately for destruction apart from him eternally in hell. So he's got to deal with this question of, well, then has the word of God failed Israel? And he says, no, not at all. Why? Because not all Israel is Israel. Let me make two clarifying statements before we begin. In this first paragraph, Romans 9, 6 to 13, Paul is dealing with not just individuals, but with representative heads of entire peoples. We've seen him do this before in Romans chapter 5. 
He dealt with Adam as the representative head of everyone who is marked by Adam's sin and therefore unjustified, and with Christ as the representative head of all of those who have been justified by grace through faith and thus are marked by his righteousness rather than Adam's sin. Representative heads. That's what he's going to do with Isaac and Ishmael in this paragraph. It's what he's going to do with Jacob and Esau. He's talking about not just those four individuals, but all the people that would come with them and be descended from them. The second clarifying statement is that Paul is setting out to display that the covenant promises made to Abraham, I will bless you and you will be a blessing to all of the peoples of the earth. I will give you a land and a people. You will be more numerous than the stars in the heavens. That all of those covenant promises were never intended for all of Abraham's children, but only for the children of the promise. That's what Paul is setting out to do. And so he begins in verse six by talking about two separate groups. For the sake of clarity, you could read the back half of Romans 9, 6 as saying, because not all who are descended from Israel are true Israel. So what we're going to do is we're going to make a chart with two sides. On the left side is Israel. On the right side is true Israel. And Paul's going to begin to draw these lines as to who falls into which, which category here. So in Romans uh, 9, verses 7 to 9, he starts to talk about Isaac and Ishmael. Neither are all of Abraham's children his descendants. On the contrary, your offspring will be traced through Isaac. That is, it is not the children by physical descent who are God's children, but the children of the promise are considered to be the offspring. For this is the statement of the promise. At this time I will come and Sarah will have a son. Ishmael aligns with Israel. Isaac aligns with true Israel. The covenant promise, Paul says, was always intended to flow through Isaac, not Ishmael. Isaac's the son of Abraham and Sarah. Ishmael's the son of Abraham and Hagar. That was Sarah's servant. And so Paul says, we can already see that God never intended for all of Abraham's physical descendants to be the ones who were uh, to have the covenant promises both given to them and to flow through them. In New Testament language, that would be to say that it was never all of Abraham's physical descendants who were going to be saved, or in the terms of Romans, who were going to be justified. There's a second piece of this that's tucked inside of those verses, specifically in verse 8. Paul draws out explicitly that it is not the children of the physical descent or the flesh who are God's children, but the children of the promise who are considered to be the offspring. So flesh, physical descendants aligning with Israel, promise aligning with true Israel. Now you could arrive at this point and say, or a Jewish individual reading this could arrive at this point and say, okay, Paul, I get that, but it was never, the promise was never made to Abraham and Hagar. So obviously the covenant promises are going to flow through Abraham and Sarah and therefore Isaac. You're not proving anything by making this distinction to which Paul says, let me continue with Jacob and Esau. And he does that in verse 10, all the way through 13. And not only that, but Rebekah conceived children through one man, our father Isaac. For though her sons had not been born yet or done anything good or bad, so that God's purpose according to election might stand, not from works, but from the one who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger. As it is written, I have loved Jacob, but I have hated Esau. In this instance, Paul draws out explicitly, they came from one mother, Rebekah, they came from one father, Isaac, and yet Jacob was chosen and Esau was not. 
the older will serve the younger, which is totally contrary to what would have been the practiced norms of the day, where the older son would be the son of all the privilege and all the blessing. Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. We're gonna come back to this uh, next week, but in terms of loved and hated, but just if you want to go and check out where that comes from, jot down Malachi 1 verses one through four. That's where Paul draws this uh, quotation from. It will provide some context for what this Jacob I have loved, Esau I have hated statement tends to mean, but we'll come back and talk about it next week a little bit more. Paul's big point here, Esau is part of Abraham's children, and yet he was not true Israel. God chose for the promises of the covenant blessings to flow through Jacob, not Esau. It's through Jacob, who would be renamed Israel, that the Israelites become the Israelites. No faithful Israelite person or Jewish person would have argued that. This is who the covenant to Abraham is to work through. These are the people. It was never about all of Abraham's physical descendants. And so Paul is saying rather clearly that there has always been a splitting. There's always been a separating. That's, that's kind of the strict mechanics of Romans 9, 6 to 18. But what's the bigger point? The bigger point that Paul's going to press into starting in verse 14 is that God has chosen. Those are not my words. Those are the literal words of the text. To deny that would be, at very least, to be a bit intellectually dishonest and at the most to misrepresent what's being said and what it describes here of God. Let me point out the two key phrases in this paragraph. They're in verses 11 and 12. For though her sons, Rebecca's, had not been born yet or done anything good or bad, here's key phrase number one, so that God's purpose according to election might stand. We can work with a portion of this now, then we'll need the next paragraph in order to really help zero in on it. The word for election here is ekloge. There's the Greek word. The definition of that word in New Testament terms is an act of God's free will by which before the foundation of the world, he decreed his blessings to certain people. In the immediate context here, who's been elected? Jacob, not Esau. It's actually in the next statement that will help clarify that definition. And the next statement is at the beginning of verse 12, the second key statement in this paragraph. Not from works, but from the one who calls. When did God differentiate between Jacob and Esau? Verse 11 told us. Before they had been born, before they had done anything good or bad, before they had displayed any goodness or any badness, any sort of worthiness or unworthiness. Paul is working through this in order to show that God's choice of Jacob and not Esau, and therefore Jacob's descendants, the Israelites, and not Esau's descendants, the Edomites, that that is a free choice of God, that he is not tethered to the actions of human beings, that the creator is not bound by the will and work of creation. He is separate. He is other. He is free. He is independent. That is what it is to be God. 
Let me connect this with Romans 8, 29 and 30, which we talked about a few weeks ago. Romans 8, 29 and 30 says, for those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. We talked about that word foreknew, that foreknowledge, and that it's not a knowledge of facts, that when you define that word in New Testament Greek terminology, it's not about facts. When you define it in the Old Testament, in Hebrew terminology, the word is yada, Y-A-D-A, it's never about facts. It's about relationship. That's what is being talked about, that God foreknew in relationship those who would be predestined to be conformed to the image of his son and thus called justified and glorified. We should be thankful this is the case. Let me tell you why. Romans 1, 2, and 3, but specifically Romans 3, verses 10 down to 18 are explicit. There is no one who seeks God. There is no one who does good. There is no one who is righteous, not even one. Their mouth is an open grave. If God's choosing were based somehow on our behavior, everyone would be disqualified. Every single person. In our humanity, we would like to think that maybe there's something about me that would merit something different. Romans 1 to 3, all of Scripture makes it clear that that is simply not the case. We would all have disqualified ourselves if God's work here were bound to human decision-making and human action. And so Paul says, it was before they were born, before they had done anything good or bad, that God chose Jacob and not Esau. If some of Israel is cursed and cut off in anathema, Paul is saying, we should not be surprised. This has always been the case. There's always been a splitting among Abraham's descendants. And it is a free choice of God's to make. He's free and independent. Not all Israel is true Israel. God has made a choice about who is and who isn't. Take a breather. Look at your neighbor. Say, are you still with us? If your neighbor said no, if your neighbor said no, give them an understanding look and say, it's hard. I want to offer the first of three application points this morning, and it makes sense to do one right now just so we can kind of catch our breath before we jump into Romans 9, verse 14, down to 18. The first application is this. Do not assume salvation. Yours or anybody else's. We should not ever make assumptions about somebody being saved. Not all Israel is true Israel, Paul is saying. And yet, God's word is not fallen because there's always... There was always supposed to be a splitting. The corollary for us today would be to say that not all in the visible church, like just seated here this morning, are actually part of the church. Not everyone who comes from a Christian family is Christian. Not everyone born in America is Christian. Not everyone who walks into a church on a Sunday morning has been justified by the grace of God through faith in Jesus Christ. And we should not assume it to be the case that everyone has. Showing up on a Sunday morning does not mean that you've been justified. Romans has been at pains to show us that salvation is all about the grace of God received through faith in Jesus Christ. Please, please, please do not leave here this morning or any other Sunday morning 
thinking that your presence in a church service on a Sunday morning is your ticket into heaven. It's not. The only way into the eternal presence of God is by His grace received through faith in the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. And we should never assume that just because someone's parents were Christian, that just because they go to church sometimes, which is a wonderful decision, but it's not the decision that saves you, that that person has been justified, that those people have been justified. Do not assume salvation. But it still leaves us with a question about what this phrase, God's purpose according to election, really means. What is that purpose? Why would there be this choosing? And for that, we have to go to the next paragraph. It starts in verse 14, and Paul makes another assertion. In verse 6, he said, the word of God is not fallen. In verse 14, he says, what should we say then? Is there injustice with God because of this choosing? And then he answers his own question. Absolutely not. The first paragraph showed us that God's work or God's word is consistent. The second paragraph is going to show us that God's work is holy. He is not unjust. Yours might say, is there any injustice with God? It might say, is there any unrighteousness with God or is God unrighteous? The answer, Paul says, is absolutely not. And he's going to work through proving that over the next four verses. Let me give you just kind of the surface structure. Verse uh, 15 starts with the word for, if you look down at it. And then he offers an Old Testament grounding um, statement. Then in verse 16, he's going to take that Old Testament quotation. He's going to make an implication or an inference. He's going to make an assertion based off of that. Then in verse 17, he draws another for that comes from the Old Testament. In verse 18, another so then and an inference. What is he trying to point out? It's a point about God's name. It's a point about God's mercy. It's a point about God's glory. Five different times in this paragraph, the word mercy is used. Paul says, is God unholy? Is he unjust? Absolutely not. Is he unrighteous? Absolutely not. Why? Because God is merciful. And that's what all of this is supposed to point to. Paul's assuming a lot of Old Testament contextual understanding from his his Jewish readers in this. So I'm going to bring some of this out. The first statement here in Romans 9.15 comes from Exodus 33.19. I will show mercy to whom I will show mercy and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. Let me explain the context a little bit. In Exodus 32, Moses was up on the mountain meeting with God, receiving the, the law and the tablets explaining how it is that humanity was to relate to God. When he comes down from that mountain, he discovers that his people, the Israelites, have fashioned a golden calf out of some gold, or a golden calf out of some gold, and they're worshiping it. And he's incensed by it. He's totally distraught over it. So he goes into the presence of the Lord and he, I'm paraphrasing here, he essentially says, you've told me to lead these people, but yuck, they are the worst. Why did you give me this task? And God assures him and says, my presence will go with you. My favor will be with you in leading these people. And Moses says, can I take that one step further? Will you show me your glory? And then Exodus 33, 19, God responds, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you and I will proclaim the name of the Lord before you. I will be gracious to who I will be gracious and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. You can't see my glory because no human being can see the face of the Lord and live. It would kill you if I did that. But I will pass my goodness in front of you and I will proclaim the name of the Lord in 
your Old Testament, Lord there would be capitalized, L-O-R-D. Every time that happens, it's the word Yahweh. I will proclaim the name of Yahweh before you. I am who I am, free and independent. I am not who you make me to be. I'm not who you think I am. I am who I am. And I will pass that in front of you. And what is the declaration or the proclamation of that name? I will be gracious to who I am gracious. I will be compassionate to who I am compassionate. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. Why is God's work holy here? Because he is who he is. And it is to the credit of his name and his character that he is merciful and compassionate that displays his character and he's free and independent and so he can do so, he can be so with whoever he wants to be. Back up to the previous paragraph. He can be merciful and compassionate to Jacob. He's got that right. He can be merciful and compassionate to Isaac. He has that right. So Paul makes an assertion in verse 16. So then it does not depend on human will or effort. That's the same as from verse 11. But on God who shows mercy. It had nothing to do with goodness or badness or worthiness or unworthiness in Jacob or Esau or Isaac or Ishmael. It had everything to do with God's free and independent choice. And what is that choice displaying? Mercy. Mercy and compassion. Not according to the willing and working of humanity, but according to the merciful will and choice of God. And so he goes on in verse 17, and he makes another Old Testament reference. For the scripture tells Pharaoh, I raised you up for this reason, that I might display my power in you and that my name may be proclaimed in the whole earth. That comes from Exodus 9, 16, if you want to jot that down. Literally, in the Genesis uh, rendering of that verse, it says, I let you live for this purpose that I might display my power in you and proclaim my name to the whole earth. Again, there's some Old Old Testament context that we're supposed to know and to understand. At the outset of this whole thing, God says to Moses, you are to go to Pharaoh and talk to him about freeing the Israelites from their slavery so that they can worship me in the desert and that I'm going to accompany this with powerful signs and powerful miracles. And in Exodus 7, verse 3, God assures Moses that this is not going to be easy. Why? Because I, God, will harden Pharaoh's heart. Throughout Exodus 7, chapter 7, all the way through chapter 11, there are these back and forth that ensue over the course of the Old Testament plagues in the Exodus account. And it's very, very clear. Sometimes the text tells us Pharaoh hardened his heart. Sometimes the text tells us the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. Both of them are definitely there. To deny one or the other, again, would be intellectually dishonest and a misrepresentation of the text. Which begs the question, who does the hardening in Exodus? God or Pharaoh? To which I would say, yes. And you would say, it wasn't a yes or no question, Tim which I will come back to later. In Exodus 9, 16, in the middle of the seventh plague, God tells Pharaoh, I have let you live for this purpose, that I might display my power through you and that my name might be proclaimed in all of the earth. What is that name? This is why he started with the statement made to Moses, mercy on whom I will show mercy, compassion on whom I will have compassion. I will display my name before you. That name is, is about the mercy of God, the character of God's merciful compassion. 
In this case, we're told that God raised up Pharaoh as part of the means by which he was going to do the proclaiming of that mercy. In what act? Saving Israel from Egypt. I'm going to display my mercy in saving my people through you, Pharaoh. So Paul ends with a final assertion in verse 18. He has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy and he hardens whom he wants to harden. Both done in accordance with his name. Let me draw a couple more conclusions. First, in the first paragraph, we were definitely talking about representative heads of entire peoples. In the second paragraph, we're definitely talking about individuals. Isaac and Ishmael, heads of people. Jacob and Esau, heads of people. Moses and Pharaoh, individuals. Leaders of people, but they don't have descendants that are going to come after them and receive these blessings in this way. We're talking about individuals at this point. What does that mean? In the first paragraph, we saw that there's always been a true Israel that did not include all the descendants of Abraham. God chose, his word has stood, it has not fallen in accordance with that. Here, in the second paragraph, I think Paul is underscoring that even within those Israelite people, through the line of Jacob, not all are going to receive the promises of the covenant. Not all will be saved or justified. And that God is holy and righteous in working in this way. He's not unjust because the choosing points to his name. It points to his character. It points to his free and independent nature. It points toward the reality of sin and his justness in punishing it. It points to mercy. Ultimately, it points to his glory and greatness over and above all things. And it should cause us to stop dead in our tracks and marvel at a God, Isaiah 55, whose ways are not our ways whose thoughts are not our thoughts. They are higher than ours. I want to end here with two more applications and pastoral encouragements. And I hope it sort of brings everything here thus far to a tie and then we'll, we'll are into a nice bow and then we'll continue working with it next week. The first was not to assume salvation for you or for anyone else. The second is don't be dogmatic about something that God has left mysterious. Let me put it another way. Do not presume certainty upon something God has purposefully left us to ponder. Do not be arrogant about something God has intended to leave you in awe. This whole topic of election is one that can become incredibly divisive, and it doesn't need to be. Why does it not need to be? Because no one knows the total answer. It's simply impossible. His ways are higher than ours. His thoughts are higher than ours. His being is higher than ours. He is greater than we are. He is infinite and boundless. We are finite and bounded by our brokenness and by the limits of our own mind. I will give you my thought here because I believe it's right for me to do so. It does no good to leave you as a congregation in a place of ambiguity, wondering exactly how I think and and where I fall on these matters. But I'm gonna do so humbly. Because I'll admit, it's impossible for any of us to know the entire answer, and that includes me. Some people want to say that when it comes to human salvation and this topic of election, it must be either all God's election or all human freedom. Some people want to say that it has to be somewhere in the middle. I'm, I'm neither of those. I think it has to be completely both extremes. That viewpoint is what's known as concurrent election, if you want to write that down. It's also known as congruent election. 
And I want to illustrate that from the same place that Paul began with Abraham. Does God sovereignly choose or do we have free choice? Yes. My stance is that it is completely both. In Genesis 15 and in Romans 4, we are told that Abraham believed God and it was credited to him for righteousness. Abram was chosen by God. There is no doubt about that. He was a man from a place called Ur of the Chaldeans. It was a pagan nation and God chose to have mercy on him and to call him into a special relationship. It had nothing to do with Abraham. If it was based on Abraham, he would have disqualified himself. It was a free and independent choice of the Lord rooted in his own mercy and compassion. And yet we're told that Abraham believed and that such belief was credited to him as righteousness. So which is it? God's sovereign choice or Abraham's free decision? I think it's 100% both. Did God sovereignly choose? Yes, absolutely. Did Abraham believe? Was there an act, a choice on his part? Yes, absolutely. What's the bigger point here? It is a glorious mystery. I believe that Romans 3, 10 to 18 describes me entirely when I was like, 14, 15, 16 years old, that I was not seeking God. I was not righteous in and of myself. I was not doing good. My throat was an open grave. There was vipers, venom on my tongue. And yet I came to an event here at this church and I heard the gospel preached and I was sitting right over there in a coffee stain on the old carpet and something miraculous happened inside of me. I don't just mean salvation. I meant I went from being dead and deaf and blind to being able to see and hear and to having life. And I could not have done it myself. Look, I think fairly highly of myself because I'm a human being and we're all prideful. But I don't think so highly of myself as to think that I could have brought myself life in that moment that there was something inherent inside of me that made it possible for me to just come alive and offer myself as a gift to God. Like, hey God, all right, you can have me and all my wonderfulness. Because what I understood in that moment is that I was broken and sinful. God illuminated that for me. It was merciful and compassionate on his part. Election or choice in a higher than my thoughts kind of way, higher than my ways kind of ways, in an infinite and boundless way that I can't fully understand, it was gloriously both, in my opinion. God did some merciful, compassionate choosing in that moment. And I did some humble choosing in that moment to receive God's grace by faith in Jesus Christ. What does it point to? Mercy, it points to mercy, the greatness of his name. One final application point, and that's that to be gospel-centered is to be mission-driven. See the big picture of Romans chapter nine once again. Remind ourselves of what it is that Paul is doing here. In verses one through five, he speaks about how heavy his heart is because some of his Israelite flesh and blood descendants are going to be cut off, cursed, anathema from Christ. And he says, if it were possible, I would take that upon myself in order that they might be saved. And he writes this 
entire beautiful letter to lay out what it is to be justified by God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ. Why? Why does he do that? Well, because it's impossible for him to know who is in true Israel versus Israel. It's impossible for him to know with 100% certainty who will or who has or who has not chosen to believe in Christ as Savior. It's impossible for him to know who is elect or who is not elect, who God's going to put mercy upon or whom he's not going to put mercy upon. He knows that heaven and hell are eternal realities and that they hang in the balance. He knows that the basis for one or the other of those is the grace of God received through faith in Jesus Christ. He knows that the mystery of human justification is a great one and that regardless of the strict mechanics of it all, he has to share. Why? Because he doesn't have any idea with a sovereign God whose ways are higher, whose thoughts are higher. He has no idea on what particular day the words of his mouth are going to be the means by which God does something merciful and compassionate in the heart of an individual. There was a youth pastor who stood up here shortly before my sophomore year of high school who shared the gospel and had absolutely no idea that a mysterious act of mercy was gonna happen for a kid that sat right over here. There was a day for you where someone explained the gospel and they had no clue that in that moment, a merciful act was going to happen inside of you and you were gonna go from death to life. That God was gonna do something amazing inside of you to awaken you to the truth and that in, in a human sort of way, you were gonna choose to receive that. And so Paul says, I have to share. I have to cast the seed as broadly as I can. I need everyone to hear this message. I don't know how it all works, but I know it is a glorious mystery that when we share the gospel, God does something in a person's heart and then sometimes they make a choice to place their faith in Jesus Christ. I stand up here every week, Ryan, you guys can come up, and I share the gospel. And I was trying to do the math last night while I was laying there awake, nervous about having to give this message of how many times I've done that. And I think the answer is somewhere just north of 300 from this particular pulpit. On most mornings, no one comes forward to place their faith in Jesus Christ. But every once in a while, God does something miraculous and mysterious and merciful in a person's heart. And they see the reality of their need for a Savior. And they make a choice. It appears to me they make a choice to place their faith in Jesus Christ. But I also know that on the backside of that, God has done something mysterious in a 100% both sort of way. There's this amazing moment where God's mercy takes hold of a person's life. And so I will share the gospel every single Sunday because I don't know just when it is that God's gonna do that work in someone's heart. This is a quote from J.C. Riley. He was a pastor in the 1800s. He says, the highest form of selfishness is that of the man who is content to go to heaven alone. I'll end this Sunday's message the same place I ended last Sunday's message. Our hearts should break for the lost. Marvel in awe at the mystery of how God works in human justification. Trust that his word is consistent in every way, that his work in justifying humanity is holy and we should be compelled to share the gospel. To be gospel-centered is to be mission-driven. And I don't wanna be dogmatic about things that are mysterious, but I don't think this is a mystery. If you truly understand the gospel, you must be 
driven by the mission of Christ to share the gospel of Jesus Christ with every single person that you can possibly think of. We had a pretty awesome time at the end of our services last week, repenting of the fact that our hearts are often cold and calloused toward the loss. And I've got to ask the question both to you and to myself, did it make any difference during the week? Was it just a powerful moment at the end of the service or did it make a difference? Did it cause you to look at the loss differently? Did it compel you to share the gospel with them? Because that's what it should do. There's a mystery, a consistent, holy, marvelous mystery in the way that God works in justifying humanity. All I know is that our part is to share that message as far and wide as we possibly can because it would be the height of human selfishness to be totally content to go to heaven alone. Amen? Stand up, let's sing together.